The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. This show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today, 1967, Episode 1, January through April. Phase 2 of Beatlemania sets in as the Beatles step down from the stage. Yes, the touring days were over. The fans would have to be satisfied with records and radio play, and maybe a rare interview now and then. What we generated was fantastic where we played straight rock and there was nobody to touch us in Britain you know but as soon as we made it we made it the the edges were knocked off you know Brian put us in suits and all that and we made it very very big but we sold out you know and the music was dead before we even went on the theatre tour of Britain because we had to reduce an hour or two hours playing which we were glad in one way to 20 minutes and go on and repeat the same 20 minutes every night the Beatles music died then as, as musicians. That's why we never improved, you know, as musicians. We killed ourselves then to make it. John Lennon definitely felt his roots were in rock and roll as well as his destiny. To him, the end of live appearances meant the end of an era. The onstage magic really got to him like no studio setup ever could. The Beatles' old cohort from their Cavern Club days, Mal Evans, also found his extra special moment on stage with the Beatles. My favorite moment that made it all worthwhile for me, there was one time, there was a couple of minutes, I used to have the four Beatles to myself. The whole world just disappeared. And that was just before the curtains opened. I'd have all the equipment set up on stage, everything we tested out, They'd have the guitars in the dressing room with the tune-up and everything. They'd come on stage, and it'd be the last couple of minutes, just before the curtains opened and they met the public. Well, there'd be five of us, just the five of us on stage. And that was like a sacred moment for me. And that's made it all worthwhile. Now back to New York and Don Glasser, the orchestra. From Roseland Dance City in New York, it's music's smoothest glass style, Don Glasser's Way. Scott in London. It's 1967. We've taken the road to its limits. 
as far as we're concerned. What else could we do out there? I made a suggestion, I said, really to get away from ourselves, how about if we just become sort of an alter ego band? To begin with, the, the Beatles knew that I didn't really approve of all that. And um, so they kept it undercover. You know, if they wanted to smoke, they'd go, they'd get Mel to organize something in the, in the canteen. They'd lock the door and go down there. I'd see them disappearing one by one. And I would knew per I'd know perfectly well what was going on, but that was it. They weren't open about it. San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury goes full-scale psychedelic with the Summer of Love. You know that it would be untrue You know that I would be a liar If I was to say to you Girl, we couldn't get much higher Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. Cynthia Lennon. It was the midst of the flower power era when hippies, flowers, love and peace were the themes. Psychedelia was everywhere. Miniskirts were in vogue and everyone headed for Carnaby Street, the hippie fashion mecca, for a caftan or a string of love beads. On January the 6th, 1967, the soundtrack to the movie The Family Way, composed by Paul McCartney, was released in the UK. Most of January was spent at Abbey Road, completing the new single. On January 21st, 1967, NEMS Enterprises amalgamates with the Robert Stigwood Group, bringing together The Who, Cream, The Mercies, and Crispy and St. Peter's, though Epstein says he'll continue to be personally responsible for The Beatles and Scylla Black. On February 6th, EMI announces that The Beatles have signed a new nine-year recording contract. And on the 9th of February, two very unusual and expensive promotional films were shown on BBC TV's Top of the Pops. Strawberry Fields, I, I know how it happened. We, we'd be in a club, kind of thing, and we'd meet some Swedish director, who was this fellow we used to know, and he was saying, I've got some great ideas, you know, I want to do this, I'll sit up in a tree and a psychedelic and so on. I said, yeah, it sounds great. 
So, uh, hey, man. Gotta <laughs> do it. And the white horses and all that. Uh, and it was the mood of the times, you know, it was, was, was very crazy. And I say we were discovering crazy. The Beatles start their own street scenes with Penny Lane, putting the Liverpool locale in everyone's ears and eyes. Four days later, those two songs were released in the U.S., and four days after that... On February 17, 1967, Parlophone releases the Beatles' 14th single, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever, with the first 250,000 copies in a specially printed sleeve. Both tracks represent the first signs of definitive English progressive rock. The new Beatles single, Penny Lane, backed with Strawberry Fields Forever, failed to reach the top spot in the music charts. It was not able to overtake the number one song, Release Me, by Engelbert Humperdinck.
Penny Lane, written by Paul, is a roundabout shopping area of Liverpool. All the places mentioned in the song are there today. The barber shop, the tram stop, the bank. But with the fire station, he was taking poetic license as it was a few blocks away. It's full of beetlesome imagery, and its lilting beat make it a classic. The piccolo B-flat trumpet piping interjections throughout the song are played by David Mason of the London Symphony. Here he explains how Paul had seen him performing on television. Paul had seen the television performance. I was playing the second Brandenburg Concerto in Guildford Cathedral on a live broadcast. I thought it sounded nice, obviously, or thought it would be a gimmick or something new. They were always looking for a new idea. And asked George to get me to come along, just to really experimental none of us thought knew what we were going to do or and i took all these trumpets along mostly played that one and said well do you like this yes i like that sound or would you like it with a mute in no i don't want that because he had all the usual ones this was just something new i think that's what started it all off really paul sat at the piano and played these few chords you know and sort of sung a bit and went down to get down to get down can you do that and i'd go sort of down, no, up a bit and hide to down. yes that's better that sounds nice yes we'll keep that bit in then george would wrote wrote it down you see and we took three hours and a half actually writing and deciding what they wanted on this record and I think we took about 10 minutes to record it. Paul and George Martin are playing piano. John plays a conga drum. Frank Clark plays string bass. Philip Jones does a trumpet solo. George is on guitar. And Ringo is at his drum set. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs. Of every head he's had the pleasure to know. And all the people that come and go. Stop and say hello.
we're going to say hello to John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Look out, look out. Now, now that number, Penny Lane, failed to make number one in Britain, fellas. Did you feel it's all put out by that? No, it's. Uh, I don't know. The main thing is it. It's fine if you're kept sort of from being number one by uh, sort of a record like Release Me, because yeah. uh, you're not trying to do the same kind of thing as Release Me is trying to do. You know, yeah. so that's a completely different scene altogether. Mm. That kind of thing. Uh, but you have. So it doesn't really matter no, anyway. Yeah. But you have in the past said, or at least been reported as having said, that in the event of a record not going to number one, you'd seriously think about packing it all in. Do you feel like that? It was a relief. Uh, you know, everything we did just went straight to number one. And of course, then you have that pressure. And I, I believe we had like seven on the row. I'm, I'm not really sure. Something six or seven. That was out, was in, was out, was one, you know. So, actually, uh, within the group, it, it took the pressure off. The thing is, I mean, you've obviously reached the stage where you don't have to write any more songs for any reason at all other than you like doing it. So, But it's always been like that. That's a good thing. Yeah? That's the, you know, because it has been a hobby. Mm-hmm. And it still is, you know. This is the first time since Love Me Do that a Beatles single failed to reach number one. Penny Lane never gets past number two in the charts, prompting the press to ask if the new, non-touring Beatles are fading, or if maybe they're just plain worn out from the wild life they were leading. Strawberry Fields Forever was the flip side of Penny Lane and the surreal side of nostalgia. The subject matter of both sides was Liverpool. Strawberry Fields, written by John, is a Salvation Army orphanage that was near Aunt Mimi's house. John Lennon's father, Fred, had stayed there as a boy. There were lots of trees and places to play. Young John would go to garden parties there and always had a good time. Those images came out through the surreal lyrics, the hypnotic singing, and the superb arrangement by George Martin. There were actually two versions done, and both were put together to make the final piece. Nothing is real. 
you know I know when it's a dream I think I know I mean uh, yes but it's all wrong that is I think I disagree let me take you down cause I'm going to strawberry I think the Strawberry Fields did represent the uh, major change in the boys' lives. It was the beginning of the Pepper episode, and it was the beginning of the highly imaginative, um, some people say psychedelic way of writing. Uh, I prefer to think of it as being uh, complete tone poem imagery. You know, I think it's more like uh, a modern Debussy, if you like, or Ravel. I think that, that their ideas there had developed enormously in a, in a very flowery way, but a very sensible way. And I regard Strawberry Fields as being really a, a very great song. Um, and I think it's probably one of the best records ever made. Strawberry Fields, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Well, let me, how's it go? Let me take you down, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not about, it's just about me, really. Mm. Or anybody else that's thinking like that. Yeah. It's just a, a random it's question just, uh, of thoughts. Hmm, I mean, it says it is. What, what's it say? <laughs> it's, it's pretty straightforward. There was much controversy over the muttering at the end of the piece in which people thought John said, I buried Paul. It doesn't say that, it says cranberry sauce. And it's me going, cranberry sauce, cranberry sauce. So that's what it says. The Beatles and George Martin thought that Strawberry Fields was their best effort yet and waited for it to astound the world. It didn't. It was the only first record to hit the ignominious spot of number two. Radio programmers felt it was too strange. A hypnotic puzzler that the critics called chemical-induced. 
Here's George Martin. Well, the beginning of the, of the recordings were not really pepper because um, we had be, been out of the studio for a while and we came back in to start a new batch of recordings. And the very first one we recorded was Strawberry Field. And that was going to be the beginning of a new album. And when you think about it, Strawberry Fields is very much akin to Pepper than anything we'd had before. And uh, then we recorded When I'm 64, and then we recorded Penny Lane. And then we had a break, break for Christmas, and we started again in February. Well, the reason why we had Strawberry, Lane, uh, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane issued as a single was that in those days we always made the single separate from the album, and we needed a single. So I whipped it off the, the, the tracks we've been doing, kept When I'm 64, and then we started in seriously doing the, the album. But Pepper itself didn't become a reality until more or less halfway through the project. We worked on it for about five months, and Paul brought this song in about a mythical band. And I don't know whose idea it was, it, was, it, was, it may have been Paul's, um, to turn the whole thing into a record by that mythical band. And then from then on, it just grew by itself, like, like Topsy. It almost seemed to have a will of its own. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, Hearts Club Band. One. This is a take one. going to be boring to just make another Beatles album and we'd stop touring we now had this huge liberated opportunity we could do anything we wanted I went on a trip to America and came back and had this idea on the plane 
Simon Pepper is Paul after a trip to America and the whole West Coast long-named group thing was coming in. You know, when people are no longer the Beatles or the Crickets, they were suddenly threading these incredible sh shrinking grateful aeroplanes, right? Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It was all very uh, Uncle Joe's medicine show with uh, dancing bears and uh, elixir of life and... Laughing Joe and his medicine band, thank you, Wham Bam Mam, kind of group names, you know. Colonel Tucker's Medicinal Brew and Compound. You know, those kind of jokey titles. Well, really, it was Paul who'd been on a train journey or a plane journey with Mal Evans and come up with this idea of Sergeant Pepper. And he was just kind of, to, to me, we were just in the studio to make the next record, and he was going on about this idea of, um, you know, some fictitious band. So Sergeant Pepper kind of eventually came out, basically from the idea that I had about this band. It was gonna be an album of another band that wasn't us, we were gonna call ourselves. I mean, and just imagine all the time that it wasn't us playing this album. And it was just a nice little mind walk to get you to see the album, because when you're too close, it, it lent distance to the album. So I had this song written of Sergeant Pepper, and he was 20 years ago, and he taught us to play, and we're his protégés, and here we are. Then everything about the album will be imagined from the perspective of these people. So it doesn't have to be us. It doesn't have to be the kind of song you want to write. It could be the song they might want to write. It was basically Paul's idea to, to call Pepper. He came in and said, you know, he had this song, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band, and he, he, he was kind of identifying it with the band, the Beatles themselves. And the, the, I think we recorded the song first, and then the idea came to make it into a, an idea for the, for the album, which was also triggered by Neil, Neil Aspinall, who said at that time, Why don't we have Sergeant Pepper as the comper? You know, he comes on at the beginning of the show, introduces the band, right? And then at the end of every Beatles show, Paul always used to say, It's, uh, you know, it's time to go, you know, we've got to go to bed, and, uh, you know, this is our last number. You know, do the last number and go. And uh, I said to, to Paul, Why doesn't Sergeant Pepper come on at the end of the album? and say, you know, well, that's it, we've got to go, you know, here's our last number, right? And uh, send the album on tour instead of the band, right? So uh, we like that idea.
And one of the things I know, we'd read a report somewhere that had said Elvis Presley has sent his gold-plated Cadillac out on tour. And we just thought that was like the greatest idea going because we'd been touring and sending ourselves out. We thought, that's a really good idea. You stay at home and send your car. And true enough, uh, it did go on tour and people had come and they'd pay money and just wander around it like it was an exhibit at Madame Tussauds or something, you know. And he didn't have to be there. So at the time in the 60s when we were thinking of doing Sgt. Pepper, which is when we didn't want a tour, that idea suddenly sounded very nifty, you know. So we said, well, we, can't, we haven't got gold-plated Cadillacs. We, we don't do that stuff. But we could send a record out on tour. I mean, it was Sgt. Pepper and his Lonely Hearts Club Band and all these other acts. And it was going to all run, you know, like the rock opera. And uh, we got as far as uh, Sgt. Pepper and then Billy Shears. A <laughs> uh, little help from my friends. And then everyone said, ah, sod it. Let's just do tracks. So it started out with its own, you know, that it was going to be something totally different. But it still then kept the title. And, and like, uh, also the feel that it's, it's all connected. Find the life. This is take eight, and it's the choir for the end. Choir? Eight, okay, eight beats. beats then. Just like count eight. As soon as you say, um, um. Right? <laughs> just stop on it. <clears throat> the eighth. I've got to try and remember. Count eight. You leave it. Come on, with all subconsciously. Okay. Okay. Follow my leader. Okay. What's the note then, girl? Shall we just all check? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One, two, three, four. Oh. Oh. I think we're ready to do it. Take nine. Okay. Isn't that it? Yeah. All right. Ready? Now you don't have to check the note. Take his note. Stop freaking out, Mrs. One, two, three, four. The album could be called Impressionistic Pop. George Martin feels that they were creating sound pictures, making the listeners use their imagination. It sounds a bit pretentious to say you're doing that, but I really did really feel I was. Um, in the same way that uh, Ravel would use the resources of a symphony orchestra to create marvelous paintings and so on. So we had different resources. We didn't have a symphony orchestra, we could have done, I suppose, but um, I don't suppose we would have done it half as well as Ravel did. But we had other means. We had electronic means, and we had our uh, facilities in the, in the studio, and also the uh, ability to, to do anything. I mean, not just in terms of money, but in, in terms of uh, risk. You know, if we felt at that time it was right to break a milk bottle over a, a cast iron desk and record that sound and multiply it, then we would have done it. We could have done, we, we, had, no, we had no restrictions on, on our imagination. It was all masterfully produced on a four-track tape machine, an incredible feat in itself. My guitar still seems to go in and out like it's like the lead wrong. Did a free girl one then, one of them, you don't know what you're doing. Just a funny piece. Keep that one. All right, let's go. One, two, three, four. It's now dark, and we're going to work. We're going to be so upset.
standing by a parking meter When I caught a glimpse of Rita Filling in the ticket in a little white book In a cap, she looked much older And the bag across her shoulder Made her look a little like a military man engineer on the session was Jeff Emmerich, who describes the recording. We used to start about four o'clock in the afternoon and finish about four in the morning. Oh, no, 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 no. We did work the hours out, and it was actually roughly about 700 hours recording time, which in those days was a lot. Um, I think that was spread over a period of going three, three months, four months. Um, I refuse to Because that's nothing now. But the concept of the album only really came together after about six tracks had been, been uh, completed. And it was only, you know, Paul had this idea of this. merging the whole, whole thing into like a, a show, which it was supposed to be, you know.
that's right. At EMI Studios, Studio 2, on Monday, February 13th, work began on George Harrison's initial song for the up-and-coming new Beatles LP. The song was titled Only a Northern Song, its title being a wry comment on the fact that it would be published by Northern Songs Limited, the company 50% owned by Dick James and 50% by John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and Brian Epstein's NEMS Enterprises Limited. George himself was only a contracted songwriter. Actually, in keeping with George's frequent shortage of song titles, it was known on this day as Not Known. On Wednesday, March 1st, at EMI Studios, the Beatles began work on John's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. The first seven takes concentrated solely on the rhythm track, with piano, acoustic guitar, Hammond organ, drums, and maracas all being used. The Hammond, played by Paul, was used for the song's distinctive opening passage, being taped with a special organ stop to give it a sound not unlike a Celeste. There was no lead vocal as yet, although John was singing off microphone to guide the rhythm track. During the early part of the session, 
he was singing the words cellophane flowers of yellow and green in such a way that each was enunciated slowly, separately, and precisely. Paul can be heard to suggest he sing them quicker in a flowing sentence, to which John replied okay. <laughs> right, now, Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody calls you, you answer quite slowly, a girl with kaleidoscope Cellophane flowers of yellow and green. Yellow and green. Okay. Anyway. Cellophane flowers of yellow and green towering over your head. Look for the girl with the sun in her eyes and she's gone. With plasticine porters with looking glass ties Suddenly someone is there at the turnstile The girl with kaleidoscope eyes March, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever only climbed to number two in the UK charts, but in the US it made the top.
March 1967, NARAS announces the Beatles win Song of the Year for Michelle. Also, best contemporary vocal solo for efforts on Eleanor Rigby. On March 11, 1967, it's announced that the Beatles have won two Grammy Awards. John and Paul, for composing Michelle, voted Song of the Year. Michelle went on to win multiple awards for the most performed song of the past year. And to Paul for the best contemporary vocal performance on Eleanor Rigby. Their German friend Klaus Vormann wins a Grammy Award for his collage creation LP sleeve design for Revolver. And yet another award from the Songwriters Guild of Great Britain claimed by Yellow Submarine, the biggest selling British single of 1966. On the same day, Dick James tells two British pop papers that 446 different versions of Yesterday have been recorded so far. All through March, April, and May, the Beatles are recording at Abbey Road Studios, London. It is getting better, take one. Sing it, you know, uh, I gotta admit and get and all that. Properly. If you can think, you know. Yeah. I'll just say one, two, because it can always be cut out. Scene. 
over men and horses, hoops and garters, lastly through a hogshead of real fire. In this way, Mr. K will challenge the world. The celebrated Mr. K performs his feat on Saturday at Bishop's Gate. will dance and sing as Mr. Kite flies through the ring. Don't be late. Mrs. K and H assure the public their production will be second to none. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the walls. Somersets he'll undertake on solid ground Having been some days in preparation A splendid time is guaranteed for all And tonight Mr. Kites is topping the bill On Thursday, March 30th, the Beatles were scheduled for instrumental overdubs for the song with a little help from my friends. Uh, take one. Take two. Before this session, the Beatles went to Chelsea Manor Photographic Studios in Flood Street, Chelsea, London to pose for the Michael Cooper shots which would adorn the Peter Blake designed cover and inside gatefold of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Cover art in the, in the middle 60s hadn't really been exported up to, up to Pepper. Originally the cover was going to be us dressed as this other band in kind of crazy gear, but it was all going to be stuff that we'd always wanted to wear, all stuff that like we always secretly really liked and it may have been. So, you know, the sleeve came and we wanted to dress up and we wanted to be these people, you know, the peppers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let's get suits. And, you know, it was flower power. I mean, coming into its fullest. You know, that's, that's what it was. And we were going to have photos on the wall, which were all our heroes. And it could be anything. It could be Marlon Brando in his leather jacket, or it could be Einstein. It could be anybody we'd all ever thought, oh, he was good. And it was going to be this band and all their cult heroes. And we kind of put this other identity on them to do it. And um, that was how it turned out. You know, the cover got changed a lot, you know, in, in the process. But that was... When the boys decided what they wanted, they wanted really to put all of their heroes on the album in some form or another. George Harrison. I like the idea of having all your favorite people on the album cover. 
The concept of Sgt. Pepper was complemented by the lavish sleeve design put together by British pop artists Jan Harworth and Peter Blake. By recruiting Peter Blake, who was a, an avant-garde artist again, to assemble the, their ideas and realize them in the same way that I was realizing the music, they did, a, I think, a, a pretty smart thing. Neil Aspinall. And anyway, you know, then uh, Mal and I just went to all the different libraries and got prints and... Uh, Peter Blake blew them up and tinted them and uh, made the columns. What happened was that they, they were well into the music and they were friends with Robert Fraser, who was a kind of seminal figure in, in that whole... Robert was a friend of both the Stones and the Beatles, was an art gallery owner, and I was with his gallery. And Robert said, well, look, why don't we ask, uh, in italics, fine artist, you're a, a real artist, to, to do a cover? And then I said, well, by using a a technique of making cut-out figures and perhaps using... I, I probably hadn't thought of the waxworks by then, but using a kind of cut-out figure, we could have a, a magic crowd of really anybody you want. You know, I mean, anyone in the whole world, dead or alive, or you know, mythical or whatever you want, we, we could do. So this, this evolved as an idea, and, and then we, we, we started the kind of mechanics of doing it, which was to to ask each of them to make a list of the people they would like in this magic crowd. And I made a list, and Robert Fraser made a list. Um, and that was quite sort of um, typical and amusing because because Paul's list was, was quite complete. It was, a, it was a long list, and John's was a very long, good list. And George um, gave us a list of about six different gurus, you know, including the Maharishi, and, but they were all Indian gurus. And from that, we kind of worked out a, a working list of people, um, put all the photographs and reference together, and then had life-size blow-ups blow made and cut out. I mean, on John's list, I, I think just to be, to be kind of controversial, he had Hitler on his list, and he had Jesus on his list. And, and, and we, you know, it was generally agreed that it was just too controversial to, to put them in. I mean, it was... So, so, so they're there. Hitler is actually behind... Um, behind the four Beatles. I mean, he's in, he's in the group. But at the last minute, we, it was decided it was too much. So, so they're standing in front of him. Mal Evans. Also, the thing about the uh, Sergeant Pepper cover, it was going to be a personal thing. I mean, the characters that were on the cover were all favourites of one of the group. And they asked, or we asked each other to provide a whole list of names of our favourite characters, our favourite actors, our favourite heroes, you know. And of course, as you well know, I'm a great Elvis fan. And of all people in the world that I would want to be on the cover would be Elvis Presley. And it was Paul who pointed out when the album was out, he said to me one night, hey man, you made a mistake. <laughs> he said, you forgot to put Elvis on the cover. And I just couldn't believe it that the guy like Elvis, who was so strong and so, such an influence in my life, I would just forget about that time. It's a mental aberration, you know. And also we had a, a personal thing on that grave, as you call it. <laughs> uh, I had um, a little porcelain soldier with a rifle on his shoulder, you know. And we all had something personal. John had a couple of heads of people, stone heads that he liked, you know. I think what happened straight away was that it was it was very mysterious. I mean, the, the, it was like a game. There were quizzes to, to see if you could spot who everyone was. And, of course, nobody could. And I think a kind of cult built up around it. And then, um, 
you know, the, the, the myths and, and stories that, that built up around it, it became um, an interesting talking point, I think. If you've ever wondered who is actually in the collage of people on the cover, there are wax figures of Diana Doors and Sonny Liston, cut-out pictures of Shirley Temple, Stu Sutcliffe, Gene Kelly, Marlon Brando, Tom Mix, Oscar Wilde, Tyrone Power, Larry Bell, Dr. Livingston, Johnny Weissmuller, Stephen Crane, Carl Young, Issy Bond, Mae Miller, Lewis Carroll, George Bernard Shaw, Albert Einstein, Catherine Hepburn, Marlena Dietrich, Diana Doors, Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, Carl Marx, H.G. Wells, Mary Pickford, Sir Robert Peel, Aldous Huxley, Dylan Thomas, Albert Stubbins, Terry Southern, Dion, Tony Curtis, Wallace Berman, Tom Handley, Marilyn Monroe, William Burroughs, Bob Dylan, Hans Hall, Merkin, Fred Astaire, Edgar Allan Poe, W.C. Fields, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, Lenny Bruce, Mae West, Aleister Crowley, The Beatles from Madame Tussauds Wax Museum circa 1964, the 1967 Live Beatles, a few unknown gurus, and a few unknown school chums. And what was the meaning of it all? Well... At the time of the album's release, the Beatles considered the record to be their greatest work, and therefore, they wanted all the people they considered great or cult heroes to be with them on the cover. After the photo shoot, the Beatles returned to EMI Studios and settled straight into the completion of With a Little Help from My Friends. April recording and mixing continued at Abbey Road for the new LP. Everywhere in town is getting dark. 
like everyone you see is full of life It's time for tea and meet the wife Somebody needs to know the time Glad that I'm here Watching the skirts you start to flirt Now you're in gear Go to a show you hope she goes I've got nothing to say but it's okay Or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now, you're an all-star, because occasionally... We'll do an all-star We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once. That is true. (laughs) We are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird. See? We weren't (laughs) even lying.